Hello and welcome to the commentary for lesson 353. This is Amos chapters 8 and 9. Um, I haven't posted in a while. I do apologize for that. I've sort of been catching up with regular life stuff. We've had a lot going on here at the Holden House. Um, the boys are finishing up school. They've had their end of year testing and uh, wards banquets and picnics and all of that. So I've been helping out and being there for that. I also was finishing up a class. I was taking New Testament. And so I had a final uh, paper due and had to take a final test. And um, and it's summer. We didn't really have spring, but it's summer. So I've been trying to do yard work and get ready. We're going to have my aunt and uncle visit us soon. And we're getting ready for a trip. So I've just had a lot going on. Um, but I've also tried to do this lesson a couple of times and just sort of hit a brick wall because I'm sort of overwhelmed by all the layers of meaning in this and I didn't want to miss anything. But because, you know, so many times I've said I could easily go down a rabbit hole and get caught up in a, just a little segment of scripture, I'm trying to stay big picture. So perhaps you will discover something in this lesson that inspires you to go down a rabbit hole. So have at it if you like. There's plenty there. Um, but I'm just going to try to stay um, above the frame. But there's a couple things. One thing that really bothered me about this passage was there was a very obvious connection to Christ in here. And I went to... I did a lot of um, looking to other sources. I went to my study Bible. I went to Easy English. I went to gotquestions.org. Those are kind of my go-tos. And none of them said made this connection. So it made me question myself. Like, am I seeing something that I shouldn't or that surely I'm not the only one who's noticed this connection? And I'll get to that in just a minute. But um, I do want to stay in order and on task. So... We start off with um, chapter 8, Amos is getting another vision from God. It's a basket of ripe fruit, and, and God is saying Israel is like this ripe fruit. They're ripe for punishment. And, you know, God has, in the previous chapters in Amos, we've seen God uh, punish and bring devastation to surrounding nations of Israel and the enemies of Israel, but it seems he's saved his harshest punishment for his special people. Now, that's kind of hard to wrap your brain around. If you're like me, that's a hard pill to swallow, that God is the God of wrath, but he is. And we know that, and that's kind of the meaning of the fear of God, <laughs> right? Um, but really, they've just strayed so far from him. And what were they doing that deserved this kind of punishment? They were... Um, oppressing the poor. They weren't, it was more than just not caring for the poor. They were making matters worse. We saw the richer getting richer, the poorer getting poorer, the richer getting spoiled, complacent, materialistic. They've lost all focus on God. They don't give him any credit. They've gotten arrogant because they have had some victory in war, but they've forgotten who gave them that victory. And so God has just had enough. Now, in verse 7, 
we see something interesting, and this is something that a lot of Bible scholars apparently have disagreements on, but I want to point this out. Verse 7 says, Now the Lord has sworn this oath by his own name, the pride of Israel. So this is basically God's promise through Amos to the people that this is the devastation that's going to come to you. And unlike past messages to the people, where God gave a warning through the prophets and he said, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't change things. But then we saw the prophet would pray on behalf of the nation or there would be a revival and the people would have repentant hearts and they'd return to God. And God would relent and he would show them grace and mercy. Here we see this is a different picture, okay? God's not in the in the position of having mercy anymore. He has got this, he's at the end of his rope, at the end of his patience, and they would be punished. Now, I want to go back, um, because God has always been very clear about this. You know, um, all the way back in Leviticus 26, when Moses was getting everything ready and in order, and the Israelites were preparing to enter the promised land, God gave Moses very clear instructions for the priests, the festivals, and a bunch of other stuff. And he lets them know the blessings they'll receive for obedience, as well as the punishments for disobedience. Now, we know the blessings are they'll, you know, live life abundantly. They'll have many children, a plentiful harvest. And God said in verse, in Leviticus 26, verse 12, God said he would walk among them. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's what they can have if they stay in obedience with God. But the punishments for disobedience, Leviticus 26 goes on in verse 14 to 16. It says, if you do not listen to me or obey all these commands, and if you break my covenant by rejecting my decrees, treating my regulations with contempt and refusing to obey my commands, I will punish you. But talk about prophecy way back in 20, in Leviticus 26, when you get to verse 44 through 45, we see punishment doesn't last forever. And this was predicted by God way back when, because he made that covenant with Israel so long ago. So here's the scripture. It says, but despite all this, I will not utterly reject or despise them while they are in exile in the land of their enemies. I will not cancel my covenant with them by wiping them out for I am the Lord, their God for their sake. I will remember my ancient covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of all nations that I might be their God. So see, God knew this would all happen, of course, like he always does, way before this ever happened. And then you go to Amos 9, verse 8, repeats the same sentiment, but I will never completely destroy the family of Israel, says the Lord. And then we get to uh, the end of chapter 9, where it talks about the promise of restoration for Israel. I love that, that this is big picture in the, in this promise of restoration. It's looking back to the time of David and it's also looking forward. And this is a message of hope in a huge way. And like so much prophecy we see in the Bible, it seems to have almost a dual meaning because this could apply to, um, the somewhat near future 
right? Um, in the beginning of chapter nine, where it talks about the destruction that God's going to bring on them, um, it talks about how he's going to strike the tops of the temple columns so that the foundation will take will shake, bring down the roof on the heads of the people below. I will kill with the sword those who survive. No one will escape. And then he goes on this verses two through four. If they go here, I'll find them. If they go there, there's basically just saying there's no way to hide from God. And, you know, this could refer to the time in 586 BC when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. So, in a way, it kind of fits for that time frame. However, this promise of restoration, I didn't see it said perfectly clear in any of my studies, but it seems this could be a reference not just to the peace that will come to Jerusalem as we know it, but the new Jerusalem, which is heaven. So this could refer to how things will be in heaven, which is also called in places in scripture, the new Jerusalem. Okay. So I don't know, but it does, like I said, definitely seem to have a double meaning there. So we are going to read about the Babylonians and how they conquered Israel and more about this coming up in the books, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, actually, I want to go back to verse 7 in chapter 8 for a little bit when it said, Now the Lord has sworn this oath by his own name, the pride of Israel. Um, Like I said, this is, he's run out of patience, but it's more than that. When it says the pride of Israel, there's something there, okay? Um, The pride of Israel can be interpreted many ways. And there's a lot of different opinions on that. But because God is swearing by his own name, comma, the pride of Israel, it seems like God is calling himself the pride of Israel. Now, it also makes sense that the pride of Israel would mean Jesus because he is the pride of Israel, right? The lineage that goes from King David um, and on to Jesus Jesus, of course, becomes the Messiah who saves all of the people um, of the world, even. So that would be the pride of Israel. And that also could be an argument for the Trinity, to support the Trinity, because the pride of Israel is Jesus. Um, Jesus is God, and here the Lord has sworn this oath by his own name, the pride of Israel. Or perhaps it could just mean that he is the pride of his, I, I don't know. There's there's a lot of layers. Some people think that the pride of Israel is referring to the land itself. Some people think it's referring literally to the pride that Israel has. Therefore, God has to punish them. But it makes sense that he's speaking about himself and calling himself the pride of Israel. Because it says, by his own name, comma, the pride of Israel. I will never forget the wicked things you have done. Um, this is interesting. So verse eight, it says, the earth will tremble for your deeds and everyone will mourn. The ground will rise like the Nile river at flood time. It will heave up and then sink again. Now in chapter nine, verse five, it says, something similar about the Nile river. The ground rises like the Nile river at flood time, and then it sinks again. So is he talking about a flood or is he talking about an earthquake? Well, it seems like, you know, he's referring to the Nile River at flood time so that they could visualize it because this is going to be an earthquake of 
epic proportion. This is going to be something that they have no frame of reference. They've never seen an earthquake. This isn't like you're sitting in a building and you look at someone and say, did you feel that? And things are shaking. No, this is, there's going to be pieces of earth that rise up and then fall down. And so God is just painting the picture for them so that they can wrap their brains around what this is going to be like. This is no little earthquake, right? Many lives will be lost. And so he's just creating that visualization so that they can understand the enormity of the situation and what's to come. Verse 9, and this is what I caught on to that I didn't see in any commentary and that confused me. But verse 9 says, In that day, says the Sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth while it is still day. The thing that stands out to me in that is that that same thing happens when Jesus is crucified. Okay? Um, So this idea of darkness in the middle of the day is substantial. Easy English says that perhaps this is a sign that God is very sad, which makes sense because in Matthew chapter 27, when we learn about the crucifixion of Christ, the same thing happens. And to me, this is so out there, and I can't believe that I didn't read about it in any of the commentaries, but, well, I'll just read, I'll read Matthew 27 to you so you can get the correlation. Verse 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. I'm sure I'm not saying that right, but it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. The earth shook, the rocks split. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. So see, now we read Amos chapter eight. This is before Jesus ever even comes on the scene. In that day, says the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth while it is still day. That is the hottest part of the day, the brightest part of the day, the most unlikely time for it to go dark. So it's not like this happens at dusk. So you just think, wow, that's weird. We got dark a little sooner today. No, this is an obvious time where God is doing something highly unusual to show his power. But also, as Easy English said It could be a sign that God is very sad. Like I said, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some some have said that it's not that God forsake him, it's that God couldn't look upon it because it was upsetting to him. And then if you go down to Amos 8 verse 10, It says, I will turn your celebrations into times of mourning and your singing into weeping. You will wear funeral clothes and shave your heads to show your sorrow as if your only son had died. Is he just hinting? Or is he just putting it in perspective? Because obviously the the only son is a big deal. And is he just making a point? I don't think so. I mean, he's a prophet. There's a lot there. 
And so I had to make that obvious correlation, and I was surprised that none of the other commentaries did that. And it made me worry that maybe I was seeing something I shouldn't, but how I don't know. How could I not make that connection? Um, anyways, then verse uh, 11 and 12, it says, The time is surely coming, says the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from border to border, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. So we do know that between the Old Testament, the end of the Old Testament, and the beginning of the New Testament, there's a period of about 400 years where the people did not hear from God. So this could be prophecy for that. It could also be literal for the end times. Has Christians come under more hostility for their faith? And the word of God is rejected, which we know it will be. It's not such a far stretch of the imagination to think that the word of God would be disregarded, even destroyed, right? That, and what we see in the news today with Facebook and with the internet, it's not so hard to believe that they could censor God out of everything, right? Maybe someday we'll do a Google search and we'll try to learn about God and we will either be flagged and identified for that search or we will um, not be able to find what we're looking for. I don't know, but it's not so hard to imagine that that could happen and it could be a reality. So perhaps, like I said, this could have a double meaning. This prophecy could also apply to end times and it could be literal. Who knows? Um, and their sin, verse 14 points to their sin is not just about oppressing the poor. This is, um, this is against God's numero uno number one rule. And that was to not put other gods before him. Um, verse 14 says, and those who swear by the shameful idols of Samaria, who take oaths in the name of the God of Dan and make vows in the name of the God of Beersheba, they will all fall down never to rise again. So you're making oaths to them. Well, I'm making an oath to you. Party is over. So that's where we come in. And again, you know, at the beginning of chapter nine, when it says strike the tops of the temple columns, so that the foundation will shake. He's going to bring the roof down. A lot of people are going to die. Um, no one will escape, it says. But then when you get down here in verse 8, it says, But I will never completely destroy the family of Israel, says the Lord. So there is a remnant that he will always protect. He has promised that from you know, the covenant from the time of Abraham. He he made a covenant to Jacob. He made a covenant to King David that from their line would come the Christ, the Messiah, who will become the final sacrifice. And he will allow the people to have eternal life with God. And they will no longer be separated from God for their sins. And they will no longer you know, have to live in the knowledge that they can never live up to his holy standard because we can't even now. So, um, there's really a lot in here. And like I said, I could go down quite a few rabbit holes, but I think the main big picture thing is, you know, I love that connection. Verse nine in that day, I will make, says the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth while it is still day. That's exactly what happens when Christ, when Christ is on the cross and when he dies and gives up his spirit. 
Um, also, the promise of restoration is a beautiful message of hope. It looks back on where they came from. It looks forward to where they're going. And it looks ahead to end times. And I believe um, it has a dual meaning, again, of there will be peace in Jerusalem, but it could also be pointing to the new Jerusalem, which is awaiting us in heaven. So that's a good place to end with that. And I hope you are inspired to maybe get a little more out of it if you want to look into a couple things. But uh, yeah, that's the good stuff. That's the stuff I love. Anyways, went a little long today, but it was necessary. I hope you all have a great day. I will talk to you soon.